0: It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since
1: 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
0: Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you.
0: In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book
1: character created by Michael Bond. I love those films so much.
0: Hugh Grant is
1: perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions.
0: It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> it didn't
1: mean literally. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse and the two Breaking Dawn
1: parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film.
0: We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels.
1: Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series love these extended editions all the way maybe plus all the mission impossible
0: films based on the 1960s tv series
1: and we've still got at least one more to go
0: members got to hear us chat about the hustler and the color of money adapted from walter tevis's books
1: get all of these books and more at our originals page thenextreelcom slash originals
0: start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals
1: I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson.
0: Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol is over. The entire IMF has been disavowed. An hour ago, a bomb blew up the Kremlin. The president has initiated Ghost Protocol. The entire IMF has been disavowed. Now I've been ordered to take you to Washington where they will hang the Kremlin bombing on you and your team unless you were to escape after assaulting Brandt and me. But if anyone of your team is caught, they will be branded terrorists out to incite global
1: nuclear war. So what happens now? Your mission. Should you choose to accept it?
0: So, what's the play? It was very close to just saying Light the Fuse. Very close. <laughs> there are a couple of lines in there that, in this movie that are funny in that regard. I think you already picked my other favorite one. <laughs> Accomplished. <laughs>
1: We were just talking about one of the previous films, because we were looking at the Toros Stunt Awards. It might have been the very first film, because Light the Fuse was very prominent on the poster. Mm-hmm. And, oh no, it was, I guess, the Toros World Stunt Awards. It would have been the second film, because um, that was the first year the Tauros Stunt Awards were around. And the poster for that one said Light the Fuse, because we were laughing about how... There was a lot of fire in that one, but it didn't get nominated for Best Firework, <laughs> uh, even though the poster is all flames and says Light the Fuse. So obviously, Light the Fuse is prominent, like so many things in this franchise. And, and they're certainly uh, this is the this is the film where they start playing around with some of that stuff. Or maybe the film. The, is it the only film where they're really playing around with that? I think this is probably the only cheeky film.
0: Well, this is the this is the cheeky film and I think it's because of I think it's because of the director. I think the director has more room in his life for cheek. This is the Brad Bird entry into the Mission Impossible franchise. Do you remember your thinking like when it when you, the the movie came out and you were like I'm going to go sit in on a Brad Bird Mission Impossible movie?
1: Well, you know, it's funny cuz you know we were, in our last week's episodes that we did about Mission Impossible 3, I didn't even remember until after we'd recorded the episode and um, I was editing it. I'm like, "Did I I, I didn't even see this one in the theaters. That's how disinterested I had become in the Mission Impossible franchise by the time I was done with Mission Impossible 2. And then when I saw the trailer for number three, and I mean, we talked about J.J. Abrams, and I was like, eh, I just don't even care that much. And I don't think that I saw three until Ghost Protocol was coming out. And I'm like, well, I guess I should rent that one. And I saw it, and in, in order to prepare myself for this one, which I really did want to see because of Brad Bird, and it excited me that as a director who had done some interesting animated films, including The Iron Giant and The Incredibles, not to mention Ratatouille, which isn't doesn't quite relate as much to the this franchise as perhaps Iron Giant or The Incredibles. But, like, I really love what he does in his storytelling. And I was very excited to see what he was going to do in the world of live action. And so I, yeah, I was on board to see this one in theaters because of him and that was probably the main reason i went back to the mission impossible franchise i mean i was already uh, in
0: the bag for my three you know because i was a jj guy but the brad birdness of it the fact that i am such a fan of iron giant incredibles and ratatouille specifically and his style of storytelling and framing and all of and just heart i thought what is he gonna do with this movie what is he possibly going to do with this movie and uh i i think you know ultimately uh, it it proves a, a successful vision for me i i i am i'm thrilled with what he was able to bring to this movie and had a fantastic time uh watching it again this week
1: it is a very very fun film and i don't know if it is specifically kind of i don't know there's this definite sense to playing with the the Mission Impossible tropes in ways that they're really kind of... It it feels like they're trying to do something a little different with this film. And I think that's why I end up enjoying it so much. You know, not to say that I wasn't enjoying kind of just some of the crazy stuff they were doing with masks in the past films, but then seeing the film, the the group have to figure out what to do when their mask machine breaks down and they can't actually make their masks. I'm like, oh, okay, this is kind of interesting. And it's like the villain is the only one who really has working masks. It's it's really fun to see that they are were trying to. Um, kind of shake things up a little bit so it didn't feel like they were just relying on the same things.
0: For sure. It also introduces, uh, as you know, my, one of my very favorites, it's Jeremy Renner, is uh, introduced in this movie. I like the team that is is uh, sort of invoked in this movie with Tom Cruise. We have Simon Pegg back. We introduce Jeremy Renner, who actually, to me, has a story in this, uh, in this movie that relates. It's kind of an interesting, naughty bit of circumstance that brings them all together, but I like the way The reveals happen. Paula Patton as Jane, I think, is a a significant upgrade over the also-ran team members that we had in prior movies, even though we don't get to see her again. Uh, I do enjoy her in this movie. Like, the the entire sort of team um, uh, aspect just really plugs for me i i think it's it's uh it's really solid i enjoy every aspect whenever we cut away i'm never wishing we would just get back to ethan uh even though ethan is doing some incredible things in this movie uh does the team work for you
1: oh it's so much better than what we had had up to this point point. and i uh you know color me a little disappointed that paula Patton hasn't been able to continue in the franchise because yeah. i really enjoy her energy in the film i think she plays well opposite uh, Cruz. As far as kind of those two elements of the team, there's this—I mean, this interesting kind of story thread, I suppose, at the start of the film where uh, she is working with someone, uh, Trevor Hanaway, and uh, and I guess they they're working together and dating. It seems because she's very upset when when he gets killed. I, it's one of those work relationships that I I would think that they. Uh, they would look down upon for people to date within an agency mm-hmm. yeah. like
0: this a- like, hr would be upset yeah with like them. spies
1: yeah. dating spies it's like it uh, doesn't seem like the smartest of things because as we see then you may end up making some decisions that are a little um less than satisfactory for any particular mission but still like i absolutely love her in the film i think she carries her weight incredibly well And, uh, yeah, so to that end, like, she's she's great. It is interesting, just as an interesting side note, continuing from last week, that interestingly, it's the only the women who get shot again in this particular film is Paula Patton is the one who does get (laughs) shot. Um, But, yeah, Jeremy Renner is great. And uh, it's it's kind of a shame That, as much as I love this team, they don't really get to kind of continue as a whole moving forward. But it is nice to see Jeremy Renner and Simon Pegg both continue, at least into the next film, together.
0: That's a bit of a narrative rug pull, too. It's like at the end of the movie, they were intending for the team to stay together somehow, because they all picked up the phones at the very last bit of the movie. Like my assumption at the end of the movie was, okay, this, maybe this is our team. And it's, it's kind of close to that, you know, going into the next movie, but it's, it's not that it's not what I expected. They don't really figure that out until later. And this is the movie. You made a a comment, I think, when we were talking about Mission Impossible one, about uh, the fact that we don't get Luther in all the movies except for a cameo, and this is that cameo. We do have Luther back at the very, very end, um, but only in the post-story bit. The other thing I would like to to just point out is that uh, Hannaway is played by Josh Holloway, who should have, by all rights, been in the last movie because he's a lost guy and J.J. Abrams was bringing lost people in, but he wasn't. He was in this J.J. produced Um, vehicle anyway so i i really like josh Holloway, and i'll tell you the biggest disappointment of this movie is that he dies so soon
1: yeah i completely agree he's another character that i'm like i would love to have had him in the last film like i just i feel like this is the film where i actually really like everybody (laughs) and i don't want to see these characters disappear and it's just I don't know. It's frustrating for me that like people like him end up disappearing because I I thought that he brought some good energy to the whole start of the film.
0: There are a couple of stunt sequences in this movie. Obviously, there are a couple of significant uh, stunt sequences in this movie that take a very very long time to make and last a very very short time on screen. And the very first one is uh, getting. Ethan, out of the Russian prison. What do you think of the Russian prison uh, escape? I think it's fantastic. I think it's fun.
1: I I definitely have fun with that whole sequence. (sighs) There is an element of me, and I know it's, you know, I don't know. There's an element to let's release the prisoners to beat up and potentially kill the guards. Like, my brain goes to, you know, terrible places with this. It's like, I don't know if that's the best way to to effect an escape. And, you know, the the whole thing was just, it's so cartoony that it's hard to worry too much about that sort of thing. But it did seem like a, uh, you know, potentially not great way to just effect his escape um you know i i mean who knows how many uh, police officers and and uh, prison prisoner officers were and ended up getting killed in the process of this giant prison riot that they basically just created um just to get him out but it's just one of those little things but still it's fun it's it's fun to see because of the cartooniness of it and the interesting communication between ethan hunt and benji
0: well and i think you i mean you said it the cartooniness of it this is what i mean when i say the cheekiness of brad bird like this is a sequence that i feel like would play weirdly in animation i can see this sequence like the chaos that ensues uh you know as a result of how this is Filmed, I think it's really interesting. And he makes this kind of serious, like violent action sequence fun by use of music, by use of, as you say, the communication, the security camera thing with, with Benji. Like all of that is fun in something that's otherwise, you know, could also be shot and presented in a a horrifically violent way. I just have to imagine everybody's just asleep at the end. They're just unconscious. That's all. And it's all okay. It's all OK, because what it really gets us is, is Tom Cruise actually playing wall ball with a piece of plaster or concrete? Is that what he's throwing against the wall? Because that may be the biggest stunt of the movie.
1: Yeah, if he's doing any of it, if it wasn't just CG. I but I was like, wait a minute, because, yeah, suddenly I'm like, oh, I thought it was a ball. No, it's actually. A piece <laughs> no, of it's a drywall. rock wall. <laughs> wait, what? Yeah, that
0: is the best effect of the film. <laughs> Uh anyway, he gets out of the prison and I like the actual twist of the escape. Meanwhile, he goes to this phone, right? And we get the mysterious phone which is somehow also tied to the IMF and he gets he gets his non-mission.
1: Much like there there's a whole um TV series spin-off for Mission Impossible that's again like the Lower Decks sort of show, but it's just the 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 IMF pre-team that comes in to get everything ready for the people. Like <laughs> in the previous film, it's like, okay, we gotta run into this 7 Eleven and we're gonna plant this camera here, but someone's gotta stay there to make sure someone else doesn't come in and accidentally buy the camera. Uh, you know, because it has to be Ethan who buys the camera. And then same thing here. It's like, okay, we're, we're gonna plant this phone here. We gotta make sure that you know no one else calls on it. Or if they, they do, they don't accidentally trigger it. And, you know, it's like all the things that they have to do to set up these insanely Elaborate messaging systems that are so dumb. <laughs> like the only one that really made sense is the helicopter coming into the start of number two that just like you know shoots the little um, you know glasses down to him so that he can see it. It's like, well, okay, that's that's the team that is doing all these pre things, you know? Yeah, they actually are sending the drone. Right. It's pretty funny, but I mean, but it is fun to see that little the little phone setup. You know, it looks like a crappy little uh, Russian. Phone.
0: And it's cheeky. It's again, it's cheeky. Yes. Bradbird cheeky. Signature cheek. We also get some interesting technology that is actually introduced early in the film as kind of a, a flashback with the now we're working with people's eyeballs. Uh and I made this note that this is the reason I would not I would quit. Like if somebody came to me and said, put this contact in your eye and it's gonna burn a lot, but it'll take pictures. Uh, i would be very upset we get to see hanaway putting it in his eye in a flashback and then later it's used again for brandt in terms of gadget upgrades this one's this one's pretty cool
1: yeah i really enjoy their trying to come up with things that are a little more interesting and the way that uh we have jeremy renner having to like look at each of these pages and like do this like double blink to essentially take a photo of it so that it goes to the scanner like this is that sort of fun gadgetry that i really enjoy them playing around with and coming up with really unique things because i mean it's a genuinely interesting plan that they have here of like take a picture with your eye scanner it's going to print it into this briefcase so someone else actually is receiving it on the other end and plus although they don't end up using it they have this scrambler that's intended to kind of scramble these codes that they're doing and so all of that is just so interesting, the way that they've kind of set up this new technology and they're doing something different with it that I could see potentially, um, honestly, I would say this is kind of even leveling up what you get in like a James Bond sort of thing because those ones often are like the sillier gadgets that you end up getting Mm -hmm. that are just kind of fun to watch on screen, but it's just kind of goofy. And this is something that actually seems like potentially really interesting spy gadgetry. It's also,
0: I don't know if you knew this, it's a remake of The Fly, 1958. Do you remember? You know why? I don't remember any eye I contacts happened, taking pictures into briefcases. In not that. eye contacts, but the transporter thing, all it did when it was broken was it took the plate and it moved it from one box to another, but scrambled the letters on the back of Made in Japan. And that I think they took it directly from The Fly for this technology. It's amazing. These homages that come around. Somebody should write an essay. Uh, <laughs> I I, <laughs> I think we'll leave that in your capable hands. Okay, all right, I'm on it. I'm on the essay. Uh, okay, let's, let's just talk about a little bit of political substance here, Ghost Protocol. Was it inevitable in this series that we end up disavowing everybody?
1: I mean, in the scope of what we've seen so far, let's see, the first film, you have uh, Phelps is a mole, working against the organization, stealing their stuff, trying to sell it on the black market. And in the second film, it's an ex-IMF agent who is uh, the problem. In the third film, you have Billy Crudup, Musgrave, as the director, who is the covert op trying to steal information. And so, yeah, it makes sense, because IMF seems like the worst organization ever. Everybody, like, it's constantly full of people who are working against the organization itself.
0: And I like it. I like this idea because it puts him on his heels and it's the inherited team bit. Like we talked about how the team works in this movie and that it's not, it it's kind of Ethan's team, but he sort of just jumps into the car with, um, you know, with these other two, you know, Benji and, and Paula and they're just they're the ones who happen to break him out for some reason nobody knows but they become the team and i really like that because like he doesn't have a choice it's not like every other movie i've assigned your team for you ethan like here's the team you're working with or it's your usual team ethan uh and then hijinks ensue in this one he has to kind of normalize and they have to get used to to sort of how Ethan works. And I think that plays for me. Uh, and, you know, they, they make a good case for why these people should be together, even, you know, again, the introduction of Renner as William Brandt. Um, if if there is a quibble, I imagine I could find it somewhere in the synchronicity that Brandt was an agent on the case of Ethan's wife's detail and feels the regret that he got her killed. I don't feel that, but I feel like that's what I could muster if I needed to, if I needed
1: to complain about it. What is your sense of that relationship? Did you buy it? Well, I like that they are creating some backstory there. I I think that's an interesting element that we're getting a little more to it. I think it plays for interesting plot points, like, you know, as we see Brandt, who, I mean, we meet him as an aide to the IMF secretary. And again, new secretary again, Tom Wilkinson. This time, very briefly, and then dies. (laughs) He's great, and then he gets killed, and uh, that's kind of the end of him, which is a bummer because I I love Tom Wilkinson. And so Jeremy Renner plays it as an aide, but then as we see in some fights, like he's actually he knows what he's doing. Why does he have such a, a handle on? Engagement in conflict situations, and you know, I think it allows for some interesting conversations and confrontations between him and Hunt. And then, of course, we get the backstory, and we learn, oh, okay, that's actually interesting. We're giving a little bit of this history as to what happened with Hunt and his wife, and it really kind of sets up uh, sets us up for this whole twist at the end of this film, anyway, when we have the reveal that. That uh, Hunt's wife is actually alive, because they really set up that Julia was killed through this story. And I don't know, I find that to be a very gratifying story element, the way that all of that is crafted. Like, I think it's, it's a very interesting bit that they've put together here. And so... Yeah, I love it. I think so, too.
0: And I think that they make Jeremy Renner, who, uh, you know, by this point, we already know as like I already know as a guy who, can, who is an, an actor that I am fond of. Uh, they make him a bit of anemic like relief in the in the movie as this aide. Uh, obviously, giant action ensues. And I, I think we did we skip the, the best my my favorite ingress sequence uh, <laughs> in the movie of the the Kremlin projector tool. I think we skipped that.
1: That is the entire reason that Ghost Protocol is uh, is invoked, because they break in to get this information, which unfortunately had been taken out from under them by Cobalt, this unknown um, black market agent that they're trying to keep ahead of. But uh, Cobalt is actually ahead of them, stole it ahead of them, bombed the place So and made it look like the IMF was actually responsible, which is why they are disavowed. So, yeah, that's a huge plot point there. My biggest issue with that, and I'm never quite sure how to read it, is if Cobalt, it seems like they are setting up where Cobalt actually knows all of this, that they're going in to do all of this and purposefully sets them up, blows it up to make it look like they are responsible but I just am not exactly sure how cobalt came to all of that information. Was that, something that I missed? I don't
0: think it's something you missed. It feels like so much of the, his awareness is based on some sort of preternatural ability, some psychic ability to understand the IMF team's improvisational efforts to actually do this. Like, I, he, there, I have to write in my head that he has a back channel that is more significant than is ever shown in the movie because uh, otherwise it is, again, just synchronicity that they he happens to be there, taking the thing already, finds out that that the IMF team is also doing their hallway sequence and is able to label the IMF team as the villains while he gets away in the rubble. Again, if I stop and think about it too much, I, I can manufacture a concern, but it is absolutely uh, masked by the silent film that takes place in the hallway of the Kremlin vault. And it's one of my favorite bits that Cruz and Peg get to do together.
1: And I would definitely want to get to that. But I just, I, I have to perseverate on this issue with, with Please. For a minute, because um, I just, I just feel like perhaps what they're also trying to do in the scope of Ghost Protocol, everything going on with the title of this film and the fact that the whole organization is disavowed I don't believe that it's ever really spelled out in the film, but perhaps what they're really trying to say is that there is actually still a mole somewhere in IMF, and Cobalt is actually working with them and so knows everything that they are about to do. Because, I mean, clearly he is standing there. If Once you've seen the film, once you see Michael Nickvist standing there as Ethan and Benji come walking in, this is when they're all in their disguises and he's standing there essentially waiting for them to kind of get through the security and as soon as as soon as they do we see him go off to go steal his stuff and set the bombs and do all the stuff that he's intending to do and so it's just an interesting element that they are i i, I don't know i guess that's how i end up reading it that somehow he is still somehow tied into IMF
0: let me just lob uh just an easy one over the plate here and see if you can see if you you find your way to hit it and agree with it at the end of the movie the big narrative reveal is and and this isn't like the last thing we get in the movie is ethan's walking away with another your mission should you choose to accept it bit is uh the uh, warning that the syndicate is around right and the syndicate is has breached imf's military communications network this is a setup for the next movie but is it also resolution to what we're seeing here that in fact you know, Cobalt is part of the syndicate and that's how he
1: knew everything that was going
0: on because he was already communicating or reading IMF's email?
1: I think that is, like, I love that idea. And this is something that um, will be really interesting to watch all of these films in close proximity, just to see if if there is that connection. Like, do they ever bring up uh cobalt uh again over the court or hendrix as you know his real name kurt hendrix like will they bring him up in the next couple films i can't remember but now i'm i'm definitely curious like does that come up where he was part of the syndicate and that's how he was uh kind of tied into all of this but i think that that's um a really compelling way to kind of craft all this it might
0: be the safest way to get out of the kremlin right you know like it it might be the easiest way for us to to make our way to the start of the story which is a rather significant um, you know global action blowing up the the kremlin like this. yeah, like that's a
1: that's a significant thing i think what it does more so than just like killing off uh, a character that potentially we really enjoy, like you know we get Hannaway killed right at the start. but the fact that this villain is so gung ho with starting nuclear war to kind of like uh kind of reset things to the point where he doesn't care if he's gonna destroy how many people by blowing up a huge chunk of the Kremlin like that's actually that makes for a villain that I really uh find compelling and am frightened of. Like it really makes it feel like he's a serious threat.
0: Yeah, it it kind of does. I. <laughs> you don't think so? I, the no, I do. I do think so. I and and I actually think that Michael Nyquist, I, I think, portrays him as seriously as a as a global Bond villain can be portrayed in a movie like this. Like his central motivation of like the global reset is is actually probably the most grounded of this kind of villain that I can think of, right? Like the the Bond villains are less grounded to me. Like their their global megalomania is is less grounded. This guy seems to be the most sort of aware of what he is doing and how he 's doing it, and what his you know motivations are as a you know that that he has been sort of swayed by his by his higher learning that this is a thing that 's important that he has to do it is like his mission is based on uh, the science I think that 's interesting I almost wish I, th- I think if I had a, a problem with it, I wish we 'd had a little bit more of him because right now he 's kind of an unstoppable force, and I wish we had just a bit more. To explore his backstory a bit more significantly, not in briefing. Like he's such a great actor, I would love to have seen more of him.
1: I, yeah, I, I feel like I get what I need from him with the way that they present him in the story. Because I mean, I don't. I mean, to your point, he doesn't seem like he's actually very complex. Like he feels like he's got this one thing that he's going to set out to do, and he's going to do it. So there's not a whole lot to to um, explore further. And I think um I don't know, I guess I I like what we have of him. I think that there's really interesting villainy afoot with him. And um so I don't know. I I, I find him to be a, a compelling character that I really enjoy. But he is one of those actors that I'm always fine with more of him.
0: I'm always fine with more, and I, I'm curious, like in, in terms of and we'll we'll probably have to continue this conversation by the time we get to you know fallout is who is the most memorable of the overall uh, the arc of villainy in mission impossible um i i'll tell you i don't remember many after watching these movies because the films are so centered around you know cruise and and the action and the the story but i do feel like there is you know with the absence of recency bias right now that we've watched all of them together i i'm curious which ones stand out as the most villainous and the most intriguing uh and the given the most to work with in the script uh as we get to it that that's becoming a central question for me
1: well and yeah to that end i mean i think my favorite one is coming up in the next two because i really i love sean harris as uh solomon lane i think he's. Is- really compelling and i i think he's doing something really interesting so we'll save that conversation for next time though. for sure but hallway the hallway sequence is one of the most creative fun sequences where they're using some really interesting technology just to sneak up a hallway a well-guarded hallway and get into a door so they can uh find a file like it's it plays so interestingly i am always excited by what they're doing with this thing me too and i'll tell
0: you why because we've already played vents we have played so many vents in the last set of movies there's like a vent always there's a vent to get into a secret room and this movie the absence of the vent it's just ripe for just creative approach to the sequence. And I love it. I love the tech. I love it when it breaks and Benji's face comes into it super large in the hallway. The effect works for me. And uh I and I think it's just genuinely funny. And it's not a sequence where we have to necessarily be wowed by the incredible impact of Tom Cruise's abs and core strength. It's just funny
1: and it plays. Yeah. It was really fun to see when it falls apart. Like all of the stuff. <laughs> it just ends up working in a really interesting way. Like when all those guards walk in and the, the camera's having a hard time tracking which eyes should I uh, make this uh, work with? And, and it, so it keeps changing the perspective. Like, okay, that's how it's so working. Like it's tracking their perspective and their position. So it's always giving the right framing, creating that sense of that 3D space on a on a two-dimensional sheet. So it's just, it is super cool. I don't know how it's designed to fit so perfectly in the hallway, but whatever. It's just... <laughs> Those are the things that you're like, you know, it's spy tech. Isn't it cool? Yep. Stop. Back
0: away from the idea. Just back away. Admire it from afar. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very cool. All right. So everything blows up. Tom does get to
1: uh, escape shirtless from the hospital. Yeah, this is an interesting element of the story where we have, aside from IMF being disavowed and basically... This mission, as uh, he's kind of uh, set up to accept it from Tom Wilkinson, that he, Brant, Benji, and Jane basically are now doing this mission to try to stop Cobalt. And part of that is we have Ethan, he gets arrested after the explosion of the Kremlin. And now you have this, uh, this Russian agent, Anatoly, who is trying to track him down. And he kind of becomes this Uh, this sub antagonist kind of chasing him throughout just to kind of be a little thorn in their side and to give us some interesting scenes only to have kind of, by the time we get to the end, we realize that Ethan was kind of playing him along to set him up in a way to, by the time we get to the end to say, you know, we've always been trying to help. And uh, this is the guy who stole the stuff. And so it's an interesting I don't know, it's an interesting setup for all of the story. I mean, do you like that additional kind of that thread that we've got running through the film? Yeah, I do. Because, honestly, like,
0: you, you always start to wonder, where is local law enforcement? You know, where are the other people who don't know that the IMF and the global villain exist? In this case, I think it would have been Wildly unbelievable to have this kind of a thing happen and all of the chatter that had been made public and not have crews first knocked unconscious, like having to be rescued at some level and rescued by the wrong people. It's a great entree into where fantasy spycraft meets practical like law enforcement and so to me it it works i like this little cat and mouse particularly because at the very end we get the reveal you and i are not enemies and uh and i think that was a nice uh, a nice touch to resolve that that bit
1: yeah and and even if it's not going to immediately kind of clean up the relations between russia and the u.s I think that it's setting it up to kind of get on the right track. And so I I really enjoy that bit. Me too. Me too. Me too. This is also the point in the film where we actually get to meet uh, one of the characters, the quote recurring character from the first film, Andreas Wisniewski. Um, He is in the first film worked with Job and he's the one that we recognized from uh, Die Hard. He's one of the henchmen there. But he comes back as his contact here in, in Ghost Protocol that puts him back in touch with his buddy that he had rescued from the jail, uh, Bogdan, that takes him to the fog so that they can kind of get onto this whole thing. But I was like, okay, this is, you know, I can actually see this. I don't think it's clarified necessarily that it's the same character, but I like thinking that he is the same character. And he went from working with Job to now this is, uh, you know, he's kind of now become one of Ethan's contacts and and kind of pushes us into this next part of the story.
0: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think that's a really nice touch and if anything, like you can tell this sort of director's stamp and what the writer's stamp and what they're willing to to create as connective tissue uh, between films, uh, this is a really nice opening that allows us to feel a little bit more connective tissue as we move on throughout the next, you know, set of films. And so the series This is one of those interesting series where it feels less connected uh, in the early films and becomes more of a series to me, beginning really here. Uh, And a lot of that is because, you know, they start to give us more of those hints of of characters that play together.
1: Yeah, it creates a bigger global picture for us to kind of see these people working in. For sure. So they send us to Dubai and into the the incredibly tall Burj Khalifa, which is a fantastic location to kind of set us up. And this was one of those locations with the scenes that we had seen in the trailers, like the teasers. Like They really pushed that this was going to be a big part of this movie, fil- filming in the world's tallest building and having Tom Cruise do ridiculous things on the side of it. Like, that was... Very exciting to see in the trailer that oh okay we 're actually going to be doing some impossible stuff and going to the tallest building in the world, and Tom Cruise is really dangling off the side of it and i it It makes for uh, another reason I love this film so much because this whole sequence um I have one issue with it, but otherwise the whole sequence is just exhilarating i can 't wait to hear your issue. Do you want to lead with that uh, sure, uh, yeah, I guess it 's not a huge thing, but I think in the in the context of The way that they set this scene up for us, as far as the team not working well together, um, that's kind of what happens when the whole thing kind of falls apart. And uh, Leah Sado, as the assassin, uh, she had killed uh, uh, Hannaway at the beginning, and here she is, the one who's kind of trading this information. And uh, so she recognizes what's going on, and she ends up, uh Paula Patton as Jane, she gets upset at her and ends up killing her, kicking her out of the window. Brant is there trying to help. Benji's doing his little uh bits in his disguise, which is great. And meanwhile Ethan's uh you know on the side of the building. It's it all plays really well, but we have Cobalt, uh, escape with all of the codes. He's disguised as his assistant, his henchman. I'm not exactly sure uh, why he chose to um, go as his assistant, but he did. He gets the codes and steals it and makes off with it. And Ethan looks at it as the team has failed. We weren't working together. And so because of that, he got away. I just feel like in, in the scope of setting the team up to fail here only to succeed later when they're doing essentially the same sorts of work in Dubai as they're trying to, um, or no, not uh, where, it's it's Mumbai, they're in Mumbai, and, and they're trying to, uh, you know, actually stop him there, the team is essentially still working together. and And so it's a weird setup in the script to paint the team as failing here when I think they're doing a lot of great work here and Jane isn't necessarily trying to kill Sabine in this particular place. Yes, they're fighting and she does end up kicking her out of the window. But I don't think that, I mean, I don't know. It's not painted in a way where she's, doing it maliciously or on purpose. It's painted in a way where they're fighting and and she ends up kind of kicking her out of the window and it happens to be that she flies out of the window. It just, it never seems as deliberate as perhaps they were saying. And in the scope of the team not working together, that seems to be the only sticking point where they're saying, okay, the team wasn't working together. So why does Ethan, why does the script feel we have to paint the team failing here because they have to succeed later? And I just don't know if I buy that the team failed necessarily. Well, I do think if
0: you're taking a measure of
1: teamwork, one of the most
0: important sort of things is that you understand all of the relationships that you have on the team that you're working with. Brant was a completely closed book. He didn't tell anything about who he was. That was a surprise to Ethan. And I think Ethan was not, it wasn't clearly communicated to Ethan just how serious, you you know, what Paula was about being in the room with Sophie. Like, I don't think Ethan had his head on around, you know, the relationships that he was actually working with on the team. And to him, that defined, you know, a a failure that led to these codes getting out into the world in the hands of a terrorist, right? Like all of that leads to, I think, to Ethan, who is clearly a Tom Cruise perfectionist, um, would call that a. Uh, fail like white marble black
1: marble. Right. I, I I definitely agree. I just don't think that it was. it wasn't like the team just out and out failed. Like it wasn't like people weren't like Simon did his job fine. It's you know Jane, Jane was doing her work fine. Like they were all doing fine. Yes, they had some secrets and stuff like that. It's just in the scope of this was a fail as a team. We we're terrible. Like it just it, it was it just felt scripted like when he has that that conversation with them after the the fact like yeah the bad guy got away yes the team failed but i don't think it failed because of the way they're painting it like we just we just didn't know how to work together like they painted it like that and i'm like well I, I thought you were working together fine. I just, uh, you know, the bad guys just had one up on you. Yeah,
0: and I don't I, I, don't share that that particular concern, but I would absolutely celebrate that in terms of a demonstration of teamwork, like what does this scene communicate? It communicates a team that got on site and was presented with a lot of things, one after another, that they were not prepared for and they improvised around them in a way that was spectacular. Like that yes. is a team success, right? That, that was actually really, really cool. And it does give us uh, yet another one of those tom cruise standout action sequences and another one where and i think dubai is a centerpiece to the behind the scenes is as incredible as the movie itself like watching the way they they uh you know altered the Burj Khalifa in order to make this stunt work. And watching Tom Cruise have a ball practicing on the ropes, swinging around the outside of this building is an incredible head trip. It's just an incredible head trip to to watch how they, they made these things. And yes, they did film on the Burj Khalifa. And yes, they did take out windows that, according to the board of the Burj Khalifa, were not designed to be removed from the building. And the producer said, "Hey, if it can be put in, it can be taken out." And that was their that was their pitch. Uh, like it's just extraordinary what they were able to do. And it's not like they took the windows out; they literally shattered the windows and broke them. And. In order to make a giant giant holes, and they said they had, they'd originally intended on taking one or two out, and every time they realized they had to take another window out, and they ended up taking twenty six windows out of the Burj Khalifa. That is extraordinary. That is extraordinary.
1: Yeah, I I just can't even imagine the uh, the process of being a producer on a film like this and dealing with the insurance and dealing with the location costs because surely. They were charged up the wazoo by this place to film here and to do all of these things, like I just can't even imagine, and then just the insurance people, yeah, yeah, Tom Cruise is going to be um tied to a, a line and running vertically down the side of the tallest building in the world um what what should we pay for coverage for that insurance bit? Yeah. You know, like <laughs> like I just can't even imagine having those conversations it's just it's insane, um but it does make for um it this might be my favorite stunt bit in all of the films it's just like the stuff that they're doing here is just yeah. exhilarating and it makes me cringe every time i see what they're doing and when he does that final run and leap <laughs> to get through the window and and hits the top of it doesn't quite clear and they have to grab him and like all of it just it's just it's perfect you know,
0: I I think I this time especially thinking about you and as as somebody who produces <laughs> produces stuff, this whole Dubai sequence just gives me complete like indigestion on your behalf because it goes from the perils of shooting in and on the Burj Khalifa to a massive sandstorm. Yeah. Uh and uh like the just figuring out how to uh, articulate an incredible sandstorm on film and where sand gets and how to make sure that everybody's prepared for the levels of sand that they are creating. Uh, it's, I have to imagine uh, that's present when you
1: watch this stuff. It's pretty bonkers to watch, and yeah, sandstorms are definitely not fun to be in, and it's uh but it plays really well and yeah, there are reasons why you don't go running around in sandstorms like this because cars can't see you and you will get hit right yeah i mean it's it's insanely dangerous and uh, the, but they make it feel uh real watching it here as that haboob uh, hub, really kind of rolls in and uh, makes a mess of. Everything
0: here—it's uh, extraordinary. I also love that car—the the car crash, You're right? Then and, and uh, again, there's another one that's really fun to watch. The behind the scenes—they rebuilt a part of, I think, it's the May Maybar Bridge uh, in uh, Dubai. They rebuilt a part of it because they didn't want to, you know, destroy it with all of their uh, crashing cars. But um, it, it, they have the two cars hitting head-on, and one of them does that sort of end-over-end-over end over Tom Cruise. That is such a cool uh, a crash. And we, you know, we just had some nice crash work in the last movie and i i I think they just continue to kind of level up what they're what they're able and willing to do with cars and make it look really good and dramatic it's it's not the whole bridge sequence that we got in the last movie but uh it is still fun to watch
1: uh, what they do with cars on the road well and this is why i i don't know i find this film just uh, a thrill to watch because we go through this insane sequence which is kind of the the middle of the film and then we still have to get over to mumbai this is where hendrick's has gone with uh, uh Wistrom where they can actually connect to this uh, satellite so they can send the codes and launch these nukes all this sort of stuff and you have a really fun sequence at this uh party that um, is at the owner of this uh, like this media syndicate and and uh this is where <laughs> we really get to see Jane kind of coming into her own as one of the Uh, One of the team members using her beauty and her uh, just how sexy she is in that dress to kind of woo this guy, played by Anil Kapoor, and uh, kind of um, draw him so that she can get him into a a private place and steal some information from him. Uh, Meanwhile... the whole bit with Benji and Brandt as they're like, can you jump in and I'll catch you like that whole bit, like that again, playing to kind of the cartooniness, the the cheekiness of this film. I think they're really amping that up. And that sequence is incredibly fun. Like all of this stuff is just building in a fun way where you actually see the team doing a lot of real interesting things. And I, it's just another sequence to really enjoy leading to that fantastic bit in the, in the parking garage.
0: And I, I just want to call out the BMW, that was used in this movie. Uh, this, this was a, a big deal for BMW and their campaign, the BMW X Mission Impossible um, partnership. Um, this was the uh, concept at the time of the BMW i8, and it was the their kind of introduction into electric vehicles with this car, and it had this manufactured sound to it, and it was, I mean, it was an extraordinary piece of equipment, and the i8 is, um, you know, it's this, the, the i-line in in uh, for BMW was, um, they say, largely sparked, by um you know the popularity of the car in this movie saying over 16 million in straight up media value for this car's performance in this movie alone um which is a a big deal and it was the car i mean it was at the red carpet premiere it was sitting out in front of the theater like it was a it was a big deal so, really really fun car. I love this car. I think it's so great looking and I love all the stuff they put in it that isn't in the production car uh of the heads up display that's the size of the windshield like all of that is is really really fun and we meet
1: it here in Mumbai. Well, and just all of that it it makes for a sequence that is incredibly fun to kind of see that whole the whole thing play out. It's just I don't know. I have a great time watching it. And again, this is why I think there is something with Hendrix that I really enjoy as a villain because, uh, you know, I, I find his intensity to go through with this act of launching a nuke to be frightening. Like, he really is doing everything he can to make it happen. Like, he um, he and uh, Vistrom get the, get the codes and send it to launch the nuke, which they succeed in doing. It launches from the, the nuclear sub. And it's off and away, heading to the Bay Area, and then I feel like a lot of things end up, end up crashing into the Bay Area. I feel like that's <laughs> just like one of those great places. Because wasn't it also was it the Rock where the missile uh, like goes right over the the baseball stadium there and crashes into the Bay? Yeah, I believe so. Right. So right. yeah, it's just it's I don't know something iconic about seeing that place as something is plummeting into the ground there, but. Then, like, he takes the case and the whole chase through the parking garage. Like, that's what makes that so exhilarating. Like, he will die. Like, he literally dies uh, trying to keep the case away from Ethan to the point, just so Ethan can't stop it. Like, that moment where he finally gets the case, grabs it, and then just drops backward off of it. Horrifying. Just because, yeah, it's just like, wow, this guy is serious. Like, that was, that was like, I don't know, a really incredibly powerful uh, kind of villain moment there.
0: Truly, I love it. I, I, it's really great. And the, the sort of mechanics of that particular parking garage, um, I think was, was really fun. It's a, watching it, particularly after the Burj Khalifa bit, it feels honestly like a small stunt sequence to be at the end of the movie like this. Uh, it feels a little bit more maybe intimate than some of the other big fight sequences or big, big sequences, but it's nonetheless exciting. Like his choice to drive the car and count on the airbag to drive the car off the, off the, the thing is, is extraordinary. Um, And I I think just great. It's, it's a great result.
1: Well, and it's just like, I mean, I, and I definitely agree with you, like compared to the Burj Khalifa, it's like, well, it definitely seems like it's a step down, but there's something so insanely frightening about this parking garage. The way these platforms are just moving all over the place with cars. It's like, what kind of, what hellscape parking garage is this? Like, this just is, it's just, like nonsense it's just i don't know frightening and, and weird and i i just have a great time watching all of these platforms <laughs> with cars moving up and down like it's just so strange but but yeah i love it it's and, and very this, shiny very very shiny do you have any of those yet in phoenix uh no i've never seen a parking garage like this i've seen you know what's the car dealership that that has things like this where they sell the yeah. cars but um, that's the only place i've seen that actually handles cars in this way i i don't know i imagine for parking garages they figure it's cheaper for us to just have you drive up 10 levels than for us to actually move your car up and down for you like it just seems backwards to me like in the scope of parking garages
0: well yeah in terms of just like leasing space and the it's landscape but they they had them they have them all over when even when we were living in korea they have them all over korea and they were kind of right downtown and you could these things at work they weren't quite as robust as the ones in dubai they looked really like glorified like eight-story tough sheds Um, uh, but, but they but they did what they presumed you drive in you get out of the car it takes your car up to a level and you push a little button and pay your fee and the car comes back to you and it's completely automated and it's pretty pretty spectacular
1: well i, I suppose in the scope of um, if you don't have the space to build a parking garage where, where drivers can actually drive their cars to the different levels, it probably makes sense to do it this way where you have to squeeze it into a yeah. tighter space. It's just when you have the space to actually have the people drive the car up, it seems cheaper to just have them drive it up to another level.
0: I don't know, man. Cars and robots are the
1: future. I don't want to dispute that. Robot <laughs> cars. That's what I'm looking forward to. They can yeah. park wherever they want. Yeah but you know in the scope of the missions and everything i i really find this one to be fun and they're again they're being very playful and cheeky here and and that whole bit at the end when when uh you know, Ethan goes to the case and is like, mission accomplished and know. you know it doesn't work. Like it was it was so funny to see him do that because it's it just is it's an eye-rolling joke, but he the fact that then they play it later when you have him talking with Luther and who's laughing at him about it. Like I don't know, I just feel like they're clearly having fun with the whole story type here. Like they, they I don't know, Brad Bird And, I mean, we haven't mentioned the writers for this particular, but Josh Applebaum and Andre Nemec wrote this uh, script. And they just seemed to acknowledge there's something fun about this style of story and uh, wanted to do something a little more um, lighthearted. And I guess you could say it's along the lines of what you were getting with uh, J.J. Abrams and his last one, but I feel like they're taking it to a level where it just seems even a little more enjoyable.
0: Just just on that point, do you get that it is a—well, I don't want to say that it's definitively a reference to, but did you connect it to uh, Bush's Mission Accomplish uh, speech on the
1: USSA Blinken? Uh, no, I never— that never crossed my mind.
0: Okay. That, that was actually, I mean, that's the first thing I thought of and I wondered how many people like would make that connection given they were so far apart. I mean, they're almost 10 years apart and it felt like it to me, it felt like an inside sort of particularly American joke um, that was funny, especially the fact that it doesn't work, right? <laughs> that, that mission accomplished doesn't actually function uh, as it didn't in 2003. So that was, that was my thought. And I, I think, you know, Mike, kids certainly had no idea what that there was a a reference even to be gotten so i i'm not sure that it was intentional but it's it's but when i I, whenever i see those words all i think about is george w bush
1: now that's weird because i i guess because of the fact that it comes from the title mission impossible mission accomplished it just it felt like a natural evolution of the title and so i didn't um all of it is so mission focused your mission should you choose to accept it mission accomplished like it just it seems to fit so i guess i've never found reason to think that they were trying to create some strange like decade late political reference yeah right right
0: that it's that all we have to talk about yeah
1: i think so so we'll be right back but first our credits
0: The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Jacob Pietras, Oriol Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.
1: All right, Andy, how did it do an award season? Uh, it did well for itself. Five wins with 30 other nominations. Over at the Saturn Awards, it had six nominations. It won Best Action Adventure Film. Tom Cruise was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Michael Shannon in Take Shelter, which I can certainly see that. Uh, it won for Best Editing. Paula Patton was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but lost, of all things, Emily Blunt in the Adjustment Bureau. What? <laughs> Do people still talk about that movie? Wow! Um, Yeah, I know. And then, you know, we didn't talk about Michael Giacchino at all um, in this film and the previous one, but I really enjoyed what he was doing with the music for the franchise. I think he was a great step up. And he uh, did the music for this, but lost to himself for Super 8. And also, speaking of Giacchino and the whole J.J. Abrams connection, Brad Bird was nominated for Best Director, but lost to J.J. Abrams also for Super 8. Fascinating. I would pick in both cases probably oh, well um I think I'd stick stick with Giacchino for Super 8 uh over this but Brad Bird but Brad Bird I'd pick for best director. Um over at the MTV Movie and TV Awards uh, Tom Cruise was nominated for best gut-wrenching performance. <laughs> It's a weird category, because he lost to the cast of Bridesmaids for, I guess, their literal gut-wrenching performance. But uh-huh. The wedding, the, the scope, Bridesmaids dress scene? Yeah, yeah. In the scope of the, you know, I don't know, I, I probably would still go with Tom Cruise. I mean, yes, I probably laughed more in Bridesmaids, but I think that this one is more exhilarating. But it's it's just a weird category to put things up against each other. Also, Tom Cruise... And uh, Michael Nickvist were nominated for Best Fight, uh, but lost to The Hunger Games, Katniss Everdeen and Peeta Mellark versus uh, Cato. So uh, I don't I don't remember that specific fight, but I feel like I would still pick Cruz and Nickvist over them. Yeah, for sure. At the uh, Visual Effects Society Awards, it was nominated for Best Outstanding Models in a Feature Motion Picture for the parking garage sequence, but lost to Transformers: Dark of the Moon for Driller. And we've already mentioned the Taurus World Stunt Awards. It did get nominated for two. Actually, yeah, nominated for two. It lost Best Stunt Coordinator and or Second Unit Director to Fast Five. But it won the hardest hit. This is for when stuntman Casey O'Neill is hit by the SUV traveling 18 miles per hour in a sandstorm. That's the one where Tom Cruise Ooh. yeah, gets knocked by it and then grabs on top and rides around for a bit. Uh, yeah, fantastic little sequence there.
0: How to do it at the box office uh,
1: There are some changes
0: between this and the last film
1: Yeah, for Brad Bird's uh, first foray into live action uh, he, It cost a cool $145 million Or $195.75 million in today's dollars That is less than the previous entries But still quite a bit of money the movie opened December 16th, 2011 opposite Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows. Alvin and the Chipmunks, Chipwrecked. Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which we talked about on this show. The Adventures of Tintin, and it did start in third place. Uh, that's a lot of movies to open up against. It would hop to number one for the next two weeks and then stay in the top ten for six weeks before going on to earn $209.4 million domestically and $485.3 million internationally for a total gross of $937.8 million in today's Dollars that lands the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 5.6 million. Definitely better than number three, but still not quite the heights of number one or number two. Still with a lower budget, this one actually ended up being having a higher profit margin than the second film.
0: Wow, uh, I, it's fascinating to me because I'll tell you just on on rewatch in sequence like this. I think this is the is is probably the best looking so far.
1: Would you agree like this looks like they threw the most dollars at it to me? Well, and that's, you know, I think it's a director who in the world of animation is always looking for interesting angles and and interesting ways to kind of craft sequences. And I just feel like Brad Bird really ended up proving that he had a handle on directing something like this. It was this big action thing, uh, big action film, because to your point, it looks fantastic. This film really looked great. And it just plays exceptionally well. And so, yeah, I think I think that he was uh, the right person for the job. Can I just add uh, one more question on Brad Bird? He goes on from this
0: to do Tomorrowland. Another big budget, big effects. Like, it, it was a big movie. I don't believe it did as well. I liked that movie quite a bit, but I believe it was critically kind of panned. Was that kind of the end of Brad Bird getting these big movies?
1: Yeah, I mean, Tomorrowland was uh, a script that he put together himself. And I just, I didn't think, uh, he worked on it with Damon Lindelof, but I just don't think the script was very good. And so it was a really interesting concept that just didn't deliver. I, I don't think that he has really had a chance since then to do another live-action film. Like, the only thing he did was Incredibles 2 afterwards. Supposedly, he's currently working on Ray Gun. 1906. Ray Gun? Is that the same thing as 1906?
0: No, I I don't. 1906 is a story of the—it's like an an adventure crime story about this guy who discovers why San Francisco burned up after the earthquakes in 1906. Is that still—I thought that
1: um, fell apart. I,
0: I don't know anything else about it.
1: Yeah 1906. That's I uh, I'm just looking on his uh, page here it says um, it was going to be his first live action project with disney pictures um but it ended up um costing the budget was over 200 million no one wanted to spend it he still was interested and he was going to try perhaps doing it as a tv series that that seems to be where it's been left
0: interesting what is ray gun
1: ray gun is going to be um, another. He, I, it's animation again. It. I guess what it sounds like is. I. I don't know. I'll be curious if it ends up how it ends up happening because he's actually reuniting with uh, John Lasseter for it. It's another animation film. Um. He wrote it when he was at Warner Brothers with Matthew Robbins, and supposedly it's the it's the story of the last human PI Raymond Gunn in a future world of both humans and aliens. Um, ah, I don't know. As of 2022, he was still, um, you know, on on deck to do it. I don't know what the status of it is, but um, yeah, I you know, considering that John Lasseter is working over at um Apple now to like do their things, it seems like this is still perhaps tied into Warner Brothers Animation. So I'm not actually sure. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's still happening or not.
0: Yeah, interesting.
1: Well, I, you know, to that point directly
0: that that they wouldn't give him $200 million to make this big budget action movie, I, I wonder how much of a connection that is directly to Tomorrowland. Like, he doesn't get to it. Brad Bird is not a $200 million director right now.
1: I, I would think so. I mean, I would imagine... When people look at Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, they probably say, well, Tom Cruise pushes those things forward. And then they look at Tomorrowland and say, well, Brad Bird was also writing that maybe he can't handle these bigger projects. And so go back to animation. Go back to your corner. Go back to your corner. (laughs) Everybody puts
0: Birdie in the corner.
1: Yeah, but he did great here. I just love it. Me too. All right. Well, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie christopher McQuarrie's mission impossible rogue nation the imf is uniquely trained and highly motivated specialist without equal immune to any countermeasures but it is an agency of chaos the time has come to dissolve the imf now i want you to choose your next words very carefully where is hunt last i heard he was tracking the syndicate how come the
0: CIA has never discovered any intel regarding this syndicate? you want the polite answer, or the truth? We've never met before, right? Follow me. Benji. Ethan, where are you? The syndicate is real. A rogue nation, trained to do what we do. An anti-IMF. They're coming after us with everything they've got. You ready? This may very well be our last
1: mission. Let's make it count. So, what's the play? You want to bring down the syndicate? It's impossible.
0: How do you know we can trust her? Desperate times. Desperate measures. Got you your seatbelt on? You asking me that now?
1: Oh, hey, boys, what did I miss?
0: Letterboxd, Andy. You've heard of Letterboxd. Oh, yeah. It's our favorite uh, social media network for movie lovers you can uh, sign up there for free. You can get your account. You can start tracking your watch list. You can start posting reviews and star ratings uh, and create other lists of movies that you're watching in series. However you track your movie watching, you can do it with Letterboxd. We love it. Uh, and if you choose to get rid of the ads and support the fantastic Kiwi team that makes this thing, you can do that too. Uh, you can upgrade with just a few bucks. If you go over to the to either a pro or patron account and save 20 percent it works for renewals as well what the nextreel.com slash letterboxed. andy what are you going to do for this movie
1: this is one that i just really have so much fun with and in the scope of what i regularly would consider the mission impossible films that i put on this is where i start <laughs> i kind of start here and then continue forward I, the previous films, like, you know, they're fine once in a while, but they're n- none of which I need to see very frequently. So, I you know, despite some issues, some quibbles that I might have with, with some of the story uh, points, I really just have such a great time with this film. I, I just love what they're doing here. So it's uh, five stars and a heart.
0: You know, I don't know why it is listed currently on my Letterbox profile as four stars and a heart, but it's definitely five stars and a heart. I had a blast with this movie. It understands what it is, and it absolutely delivers. And for it, absolutely makes me look forward to turning on the
1: next film in the franchise. I can't wait to watch number five. Yeah, absolutely. Well, don't forget to visit the dot com slash letterbox to get your pro or patron membership, it works for renewals as well. And don't forget that we have our own membership. If you hate hearing the ads on our show, if you want to get early access, if you want to get all of our member bonus episodes, we've got a ton of those. You can learn more at thenextreelcom slash membership. So what did you think about Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol? We want to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
0: Letterboxd giveth, Andy.
1: As letterboxd always doeth.
0: Oh my God, man. There are people who really hate this movie. I, I went low, just for, for FYI. There are people who really don't like this movie. I don't understand that. Did you go high or low? What'd you do?
1: I went uh, I went for number of reviews, so I'm highest number of reviews. I think yours, we should probably save yours for less, because this is going to leave a sour taste
0: in people's mouths. Oh, okay. I'm going uh, yeah, to Yeah, curious now. Uh, this is a half star from It's LV, who says My first Mission Impossible flick, and most likely my last soggy serial cinema. A dull ego trip for its fruitcake leading man who most likely bathes in the blood of the sacrificed Hollywood youth, <laughs> directed by one of Disney's trusted cadavers and featuring the slimy and schmaltzy influencing of Spielberg's soulless protege
1: jj abrams wow wow (laughs) Wow. well i mean i i i guess i can see where if you're really not a fan of like big hollywood filmmaking this this really is exactly what you'd hate yeah yeah
0: man i this
1: is oof
0: this is like you want to insult me with by calling me popcorn pete do it with this movie and i will take that all the way to the bank i love it I love it. I will popcorn all day with this movie. <laughs> I will popcorn all over you. Yeah. Yep. What That's do you got? Disgusting.
1: I got a four star by Sophie who says this and it's written as a conversation between Tom Cruise and me. Tom Cruise. Hey, dare me to climb the tallest building in the world? Me. Um, well, no. Tom Cruise putting his shoes on. I can't believe you're making me do this. Me. Tom, no, <laughs> please stop. Tom Cruise beginning to climb. You're so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so
0: funny that's awesome that's (laughs) so good (laughs) oh god can i just add the one immediately below that roberto me scientology is bad tom cruise in his 50s scales Khalifa in dubai me signing papers to join scientology i'll have what he's having (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) we didn't even bring up the fact that this uh, between the last film and this film with tom jumping on couches and and having it out with matt lauer all this sort of stuff like this is what ended up kind of driving a wedge between tom cruise and paula wagner and their production company because um there it was the whole thing with with paramount basically stopping um the, you know basically not wanting to have uh, a deal with them anymore and paula wagner was just like are you kidding we're making so much money for you, I can't believe you'd do that. But they're like, nope, we're not going to be a part of this craziness. And she ended up stepping back away from it and kind of left and largely moved into producing theater on Broadway. And they don't really, uh, they. she did a few more films uh, with the company, but largely that was the end of it uh, because of this uh, Tom and all his crazy antics. Wow, That's what happens when you let your family member be your uh, PR person. <laughs>